according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, as always. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, this week brings us to chapter 47. Isaiah 47. This hour is our uh, roller coaster. The 9.30 hour, as well as Wednesday night, is more of our verse-by-verse slower approach, whereby we take, uh, oh, about three chapters per year to work our way through uh, a particular text. This hour, we are one chapter per Sunday, working our way through the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters in 66 weeks, and we intend to follow that up with 52 weeks in the book of Jeremiah. And so we will have Isaiah and Jeremiah as uh, back-to-back prophetic studies. Isaiah 47 this morning, come down and sit in the dust. O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground without a throne. O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone and grind meal, remove your veil, strip off the skirt, uncover the leg, cross the rivers. Your nakedness will be uncovered, your shame also will be exposed I will take vengeance and will not spare a man. O our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. All right, we'll pick up there. Let me open the word of prayer, though, that we might sanctify our time together and ask God the Father to bless our time of study today. Please join me in prayer. Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, there are pleasant messages throughout the scriptures and there are unpleasant messages throughout the scriptures. And yet we learn from all of them, Father. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. I pray as we work our way through the text this morning that we would be encouraged, that we would be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. Father, as we observe a message of doom, a message of judgment upon Babylon, I ask, Father, that we might be humble before your throne, that we might learn and apply for our own selves that which might place us in a position of divine discipline, that we might learn and observe the character of your holiness, Father, that we might be admonished to conduct our lives in a manner that ever pleases you and glorifies your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I give you this hour of teaching, ask that we would learn from these admonishments, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a uh, a remarkable follow-up to last week. Last week, we had the false gods that were carted away. And if you're with us in chapter 46, we were introduced to Bel and Nebo. You remember them? Bel and Nebo. And they were carted off and hauled away, uh, being as they were just simply idols and all. uh, They couldn't stop the the process whereby uh, Babylon falls, their idols are cast down, and uh, even the big heavy ones, like Nebo, was pretty massive in scope. Uh, the, the, even the heaviest of idols can be chopped up into pieces and can be hauled off by a cart and a ox cart or whatever else might be involved. Well, with Bel and Nebo carted off, all that Babylon can look forward to is her own enslavement. And so chapter 47 really serves as a nice follow-up to uh, what we were looking at a week ago in verse 46. We have to ask ourselves, though, are we looking at a passage that has its fulfillment in the 5th century uh, B.C.? Does this have its fulfillment 
when the Neo-Babylonian Empire falls to the Persians, as we've been talking about in terms of Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus has already been introduced to us in this book study. And we understand that Babylon is who took Judah into their captivity. And Persia will allow the Jews to return from their captivity. And much of what we see here relates to that time period of the Old Testament. Or are we in fact looking ahead historically to the end times? And that's what we're going to conclude as we work our way through uh, all 15 of these verses here in chapter 47. There are glimmers that have an application in Cyrus's day. There's no question that there are applications that can be made uh, in terms of the fall of Babylon historically in the Old Testament. However, there is too much that remains unfulfilled. And it becomes problematic when we try to get um, goofy with our language, as I think too many people do in chapter 13 in particular, or chapter 14, or here. And they go to all these stretches to talk about a captivity that really was not a feature of the fall of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, but is looking forward to the fall of eschatological Babylon in different ways. And so we'll take a look at these early verses, I think, and that will make sense. As far as uh, a virgin daughter is concerned in the applications here, we've seen the expression already in the book of Isaiah, the, the virgin speaks of the protected daughter, the daughter that has not been um, entered into, has not been conquered by uh, an invading army, was referred to as a virgin city. And uh, that's coming to an end because the Persians are going to enter. They're going to uh, pierce the walls and, and Babylon's going to fall. But in the process of this, we don't see the remainder. We don't see the uh, captivity and the carrying away. This is still waiting second advent in its fulfillment. Remember, Jesus gave us the prime uh, hermeneutic for interpreting prophecy. We look at it on a fulfilled or yet-to-be-fulfilled basis. As Jesus said, all prophecy must be fulfilled. All, everything that was spoken of or written of concerning me must be fulfilled. And so we can take a look at all the prophecies related to Christ and ask ourselves, has that prophecy been fulfilled? If not, what, what do we then tell ourselves? This is yet future. This is second advent in its fulfillment. This must be fulfilled. It hasn't happened yet. And we can understand it on that basis, on a fulfilled versus unfulfilled basis. He gave that hermeneutic to his disciples in the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed. And it's the hermeneutic that we employ throughout the church age as we evaluate prophecy. All right, we don't evaluate it on a well, he got this one right, he got that one wrong. <laughs> Let me tell you, God never gets anything wrong. And even the things that the mockers think he got wrong, we find out later, oh, he was right all along. <laughs> look, at, look at that. All right. Who, uh, whoever would have imagined. Now we can turn to Daniel chapter 5, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but just briefly, we can turn to Daniel chapter 5 and we can see the fall of Babylon. We can see the circumstances that, that surrounded this. The prophet Daniel himself is ministering. There is uh, a king on the throne about three kings after Nebuchadnezzar, who is a co-regent with his father. And uh, this king, Belshazzar, Belshazzar the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And this is how chapter 5 of the book of Daniel opens up. And this chapter describes the very night in which Babylon falls, the very night in which the Persian and Mede forces are going to infiltrate the city and, and uh, going to bring the uh, Neo-Babylonian empire to an end. Curious enough, of course, there's Belshazzar, the 
The, the element of Bel in that name comes from the god we studied last week, the false god Bel is uh, there. Also, Nebu, remember Nebu? That's the first part of the name Nebuchadnezzar in, uh, in this passage here. And uh, they're having this great party using the, the uh, articles from the Jewish temple as their, uh, as their cups and saucers and silverware and all the rest. And this is where the writing on the wall appears and the Babylonian empire comes to an end. And so as you look, work your way through here in Daniel 5, um, this writing shows up on the wall and they're all terrified and Daniel is brought in before the king. It's uh, quite remarkable the role that the queen mother has in this chapter. She's brought in and uh, she, by the way, was not one of the wives of the king, but she herself is called a queen. And we accept this as the queen mother, probably Mrs. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, for that matter, as it comes down to it. She might even be the queen grandmother in this, uh, in this chapter. And she's the one that introduces Daniel into the circumstance, and he's the one then that will prophesy. He's going to read the writing on the wall. He's going to spell out to Belshazzar why it is that Babylon is coming to an end. And so uh, that's, the, that's the short version of uh, what we would otherwise spend most of this hour reading in, uh, in Daniel chapter 5. But the message comes across, Mene, Mene, Tikal Ufarshin. Mene, Mene, Tikal Ufarshin. And as soon as he pronounces that out loud, uh, immediately the understanding was clear. And so it's not certain what script it was written in. Uh, the words themselves are understandable to the, uh, to the, to the Babylonians here. It's, uh, uh, these Aramaic expressions are what they are. I, I think it was probably written in a script that they couldn't read until until uh, Daniel reads it out loud, and then they can confirm what he reads. So, Mene, Mene, Tikal, Ufarshin. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Thank God that he's the one in charge, or I'd be pulling my hair out right now just terrified of um, whatever, a presidential administration or a Federal Reserve Board or some kind of crazy things going on. And I would wonder, is, uh, is, is my nation about to come to an end? Well, if it is, it's because God's in charge, and I'm not going to uh, fear, whatever it is that's coming next. So, Mene, Mene, Tikal, Ufarshin. You've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. All right? We answer to God. Every nation answers to God. God is the one in charge. And when a nation is found deficient, he's done with that nation. The nation is supposed to serve a purpose in the outworking of God's plan. Every nation, not just the Jewish nation. Every nation, we're told in Acts 17, God has sovereignly determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. It is on this night that the appointed times and the boundaries of Babylon are coming to a close because he is bringing the Medo-Persian Empire into uh, preeminence. And then Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. In fact, rather than sitting as a queen, uh, the glory of what had been Babylon is going to simply be reduced to, a, to the, uh, basically the function of a province. It become, it'll have a governor over them as a province. They're not going to reign as an independent nation. And so in the scriptures, we have this description, we have it elsewhere, we have the book of Ruth, I'm sorry, the book of Esther, by the way, that is Persian in its setting. We have Ezra and Nehemiah as the Jews are are returning back to Jerusalem. Again, it's Persian in its setting. And so we've got a lot of uh, biblical background as well as secular history that relates to the fall of historical Babylon when the Medes and the Persians brought the Neo-Babylonian Empire to an end. 
By the way, I haven't said yet, but the Neo simply refers to this version of the Babylonian Empire, not the previous one uh, where Hammurabi had his famous law code and some of the, some of the uh, Babylonian history that happened there. Babylon is a thing that never dies. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but going to the Tower of Babel, going to Hammurabi, going to Nebuchadnezzar, going, and they just keep coming back and coming back and coming back. The Chaldeans keep coming back and coming back. Even the Magi from the, the Gospel accounts uh, keep coming back and coming back. Even into eschatological times, we have Babylon that's spoken of in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 in uh, passages that we will see here today, in fact, momentarily. In any event, like the message in chapter 13, the bulk of this passage awaits an eschatological fulfillment. Like the message in chapter 13, likewise the message in chapter 14, the taunt song against Satan in Isaiah 14, when he uttered his five I wills, that taunt song was not sung by the Jewish people in the 6th century B.C. It is awaiting second advent in its fulfillment. It awaits the time that Satan himself is bound in the abyss for the thousand years. Then Israel can sing the taunt song of Isaiah 14 as Satan himself is cast down into Sheol and uh, becomes an object for that song. The message in chapter 13, when you look at verses 21 and 22, you have uh, details here that... that uh, bother a lot of people, a lot of folks that get uh, distracted in their uh, prophecy studies and they lose sight of certain things. These verses bother them. I don't want them to bother you. They don't bother me at all. I like these verses. And so when we talk about Babylon being overthrown, how Babylon, in verse 19, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I understand that's an unpopular part of the Bible to preach these days. I'm going to preach it anyway. Sodom and Gomorrah fell. God threw down fire and brimstone, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They they were uninhabited from that day forward. They've never been rebuilt. They've never been inhabited since. That's what the fall of Babylon will ultimately be like. Didn't happen when Cyrus conquered them in in, uh, ancient history. As it says in verse 20, "...you will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation." Nor will the Arab pitch his tent there. Nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. I mean, there's some ruins that aren't, you know, habitable for human habitation, but at least in the ruins, uh, you know, Bedouins can find shelter and uh, so forth. All the tents we left behind in Desert Storm, I'm sure, became towns you know, to, for Bedouins in, uh, in uh, that. Uh, but we're told desert creatures will lie down there. The houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will live there. Shaggy goats will frolic there. These are all demonic references, by the way. Then we're talking about the demons and the fallen angels in the invisible realm. Hyenas will howl in their fortified towers and jackals in their luxurious palaces. When God places a land under this kind of sovereign judgment, humanity will no longer occupy there, but the demons do. It becomes a haunt all right, haunt is not a thing of fiction. Haunt is the thing of Scripture. As God has cursed particular lands and given them over to the demonic powers. And so we see it described there. Well, that hasn't happened yet. All right, when, when, when Cyrus overthrew Babylon, he did not destroy it like Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. It did not become an uninhabited haunt. Babylon continued, that region continued to be populated all through Roman times on even into uh, medieval times beyond even the, the Islamic era, uh, era. 
Babylon was a huge population center for the Jewish people, second only to Jerusalem. In fact, some would say greater than Jerusalem, right? Uh, the, the Babylonian Talmud, where did that come from? Babylon, okay? Not destroyed, not uninhabited, not uh, in no way described like Isaiah 13 talks about or like Isaiah 47 talks about for that matter. These are passages that we need to, when we rightly divide the word of truth, we need to put them in the not yet fulfilled category. Not try to find a way to say that they are fulfilled, but not really. Okay? I think that Christians get in trouble when they do that. To say, well, kind of, sort of. It was, it was kind of a little bit fulfilled if maybe you think of it like this kind of a thing. Our God doesn't give those kind of prophecies. Okay? Our God says a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You know what that means? That means a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. All right? Uh, our Savior says that he will come humble riding on a colt. You know what that means? That he arrives humbly riding on a colt. All of God's prophecies are literal in their fulfillments. And if we have to try to make excuses for why they were figurative instead of literal, we better understand what we're doing and why. All right? And much better to view them as second advent, literal fulfillments in uh, the things that we're looking at. Interestingly enough, uh, the very language, the very passage of Isaiah 47 has a quotation in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 18. So join me there, Revelation chapter 18. In a passage that uh, folks struggle with, the whore of Babylon from chapter 17 and then uh, continued Babylon references in chapter 18. And understand that this has not yet been fulfilled. Someone tries to tell you that, oh, this was all done in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. You're, you're dealing with a, a preterist in uh, many respects and probably someone that's sucked into replacement theology and any number of other problematic issues. No, this is future. This has not yet taken place. God has not yet placed Israel under the 70th week of judgment that he promised in Daniel chapter 9. This is all future. And we can look at religious Babylon in Revelation 17, the harlot or the whore. We can look at commercial Babylon in chapter 18, which is a global economic power. And we can see as it falls and the lament of its fall. But in the process of this, we find her, uh, her pride And it's spoken of in verse 7. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. Sensuous living, all right? It's not just for individuals. It's for entire kingdoms. And you have an entire population that's given over, an entire culture that is given over to, shall we say, the senses, all right? Visual, auditory, everything. Everything that can be seen, heard, smelled, tasted, felt, Everything that's, that gratifies the, uh, the senses. The God is the belly or the appetite for this, uh, for this culture. And I'm either speaking eschatologically of commercial Babylon or I'm speaking uh, presently of uh, the day and age in which we live. All right, The nation that we find ourselves in, the, the culture that surrounds us, that's all about our uh, belly, our appetites, our pleasures. So she lived sensuously to the same degree. Give her torment to the same degree. Understand that the divine judgment is proportional. 
Second Advent wrath is called recompense, and it is a multiplied recompense. And so the deeper the, the rebellion goes into the deep things of Satan, the harsher the divine wrath becomes. So to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. What she is saying in her heart there, what commercial Babylon is, is vowing in, in her heart is the verse we're looking at today from Isaiah chapter 47. The fulfillment of this was not Cyrus's destruction of Neo-Babylon. The fulfillment of this is still eschatological as uh, the second advent of Jesus Christ approaches. And so we see in verse 8, For this reason in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. All right, there's more to say there in terms of Revelation 18, but we'll have to let that go for the moment. Save that for future times. Um, I'll bring a little bit of it up when we look at this queen here. Let's get back to Isaiah 47 and take a look at this queen and all of her boasting. The eternal queen is neither. (laughs) All right. Neither eternal nor really a queen when it comes right down to it. The uh, nature of this fallen cosmos is you have political powers that be that act as if they're the ones calling the shots. When in reality, of course, everything they do is in the permissive will of God as he suffers their rebellion only for the time that he chooses to do so. So returning now to Isaiah 47, there's, there's more, obviously. Even in the midst of this rebellion, the Jewish people can take comfort in their Redeemer. So even while the virgin daughter of Babylon should lament, sit in the dust and lament, Uh, The Jewish people that are about to be rescued out of Babylon can sing Israel's praises. Uh, Our our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is His name. Yahweh Tzivayoth comes to the rescue of Israel and their captivity, both historically and eschatologically. All right, where did I leave off? Verse 5. Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. And at this point... As the song is restated the second time through, she's not called a virgin anymore, but she is, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called the queen of kingdoms. The queen of kingdoms. What is it that now is going to exalt Babylon in a way eschatologically that they never were before, in a way that they never were under Nebuchadnezzar? I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage and gave them into your hand. Now, was this Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century or was this Antichrist in uh, the tribulation? Okay, or both. Gave them into your hand. You did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. Yet you said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider now remember the outcome of them. And so here's the, the problem. It's the same issue with Assyria, by the way. God selected the Assyrians to be the tool to discipline the northern kingdom. And they got full of themselves and thought, hey, we're great. No one can beat us. And they, in their wickedness, then were destroyed. Likewise, the southern kingdom. Babylon was the tool that was selected to take them into captivity. And yet there's so much more here. More than the 6th century B.C., but pointing ahead now to the tribulation 
you said, I will be a queen forever. The idea of an eternal dominion, the pride that's reflective here of Satan and his own rebellion coming across in this, uh, in this feminized application, okay? Yet, these things you did not consider nor remember the outcome of them. And in, really, what we get in most of these chapters here through the 40s of, of Isaiah, the, the, from 40 through 49, we get this stretch where God is just openly mocking the demons. He is mocking the fallen angels. He's exposing their plans for what they are and mocking them for what they didn't think about, <laughs> right? He had this great plan. You put this great plan into effect. Did you consider this? <laughs> right? Because they're overlooking things. There's things that they're not considering, things that they're not factoring in. And that stands completely at odds with how God operates, how he declares the end from the beginning. He declares all things. Nothing of his can be thwarted or ever has been thwarted. Even when it seems that Satan has the upper hand, God is still the one accomplishing his good pleasure. And I tell you, if that doesn't encourage you this morning, I don't know what will. You know, we, we look at the, at, at the crucifixion of Christ. Was that a victory for Satan or was that his greatest defeat? We look at the arrest in the garden and all the disciples are fleeing and Jesus stands there and says, it is I, and he allows himself to be arrested. And I, and I think he, there's, a, there's a remarkable quote there in, in Luke where he says, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And Jesus Christ understood that that in the will of the Father that Satan was being given the free reign to lay hold of his son and to put his son to death. But God's the one ultimately in charge. And we can, we can, I think we can rejoice in that. See, we understand from Colossians that, if the, the, uh, that this was the wisdom of God which none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So while they thought they were winning, God was winning. And this is what we see here as well, mocking the sensual one, mocking this queen who said, I will be a queen forever. These things you do not consider nor remember the outcome of them. I think in all the things Satan hates and everything that he replicates, everything that he counterfeits, he wants to be like the Most High God, yet he hates the very thing that he's trying to replicate. And so he counterfeits with a twist and he counterfeits with slight changes in different aspects there. All right. Verse 8. Now hear this. <laughs> okay? Now hear this. Everything that you've thought, everything that you've considered, now listen up. You sensual one. Same language we saw with commercial Babylon in Revelation 18. Now hear this, you sensual one who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. What a blasphemous utterance. What for a creature to declare I am status. How, uh, how insane. I will not sit as a widow, nor know, nor know the loss of children. This is her vow. We have the five I wills. Back in chapter 14, here is an I will not. <laughs> okay? And it goes right with it. It goes right with it, but it's voiced out loud in what she thinks is her victory. What Satan thinks is his victory. 
that he has become like the Most High God, that he has sovereignty over the cosmos, simply because God has raptured the church and removed all restraint. And Satan has been given free reign in ways he's never been given before. And yet, no, he's not victorious. He is, uh, he is doomed. But th- Verse 9, but these two things will come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come on you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. Don't deny the reality of satanic power. It holds power and it holds power today. But that day is coming to an end. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil will come on you which you do not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone. And destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. So all of these hopes and dreams and all the aspirations that Satan has for his religious empire, his his economic empire, his hero, as he exalts his uh, Antichrist, beloved son, the whole plan and program for Satan is going to come crashing down when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returns. And uh, what a glory that's going to be. Now... As we look at the sensual one, some, some points and some application here related to the sensual one, related to, well, let's start by describing this queen. Babylon saw herself as an eternal queen promoting the cult of the queen of heaven. There's a lot that we would stop and take the time to work our way through. It goes all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way forward to the tribulation. The role of of uh, Babylon in promoting the uh, goddess worship, the Ishtar worship. Call it the queen of heaven and her magic baby. Okay, And it's, uh, it's interesting. And, uh, and, and, you know, the early Roman church did the same thing. They took the, the Babylonian uh, Ishtar cult and simply changed the labels. They, they, they gave Ishtar and Tammuz the name of Mary and, and uh, Jesus and just kept right on doing what they've been doing all along, all under supposedly the label of Christianity, and yet serving the Queen of Heaven, worshiping the Queen of Heaven. That's why it's the, the Queen of Heaven that has the preeminence, and the, the magic baby is almost a, uh, an afterthought in so many respects. Jeremiah 7 and verse 18, Jeremiah 44, verses 17 through 19 it's really not surprising since the first promise of the gospel ever given was the, was the seed of the woman promise. That on the day that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, that their promised Redeemer was going to be the seed of the woman. And this desire of women, this, this uh, hope that, that humanity has had since Eve becomes the basis for the oldest religion on the planet. Okay, Well, second oldest. I think Cain's vegetable religion is older. <laughs> All right. But uh, Cain's uh, vegetable religion has not had nearly the cultural impact through the centuries that uh, the Queen of Heaven worship has had and continues to have to this day. All right. And uh, right from the the days of Nimrod and and Semiramis, right from the days of the founding of Babel, the the Queen of Heaven worship has has, uh, taken hold around the world. 
And so uh, different things here. In Jeremiah's day, it was kind of the last straw. They, uh, of all the things they could have worshipped, Jeremiah seven eighteen, you know, worshiping Baal, worshiping Hamash, worshiping all these false gods. And which god, which false god, did the Jewish people not bow down to? Okay, but when it, but finally, when Queen of Heaven worship started to come in, when they start baking their raisin cakes and doing all the fertility things that Ishtar demands, and uh, this is this was the mark of the final collapse. It was the, the, the no turning back judgment upon Judah at that point. Jeremiah 7, 18. The children gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire. The women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. So there's a whole family worship service here. <laughs> okay. Children gathering the wood, the fathers kindling the fire, the women needing the dough. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. Do they spite me, declares the Lord. It's as if queen of heaven worship is the final straw. The final straw. Because the northern kingdom's already swept away. The southern kingdom now is, is worshiping after the Babylonian fashion. And it's going to be the Babylonians who are going to come and, and haul them off. Likewise in Jeremiah chapter 44, verses 17 through 19. So stay tuned. We're just getting a little intro here this morning. We'll get more in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 44. By the time we're done with Jeremiah, we're going to know what the golden cup is all about. We're going to know what the the wine is all about that the nations will drink in terms of religious Babylon of Revelation 17. comes out of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 44, 17 through 19. Hmm. And... Let's see, verse 15. All the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who were living in Pathros in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah saying, as for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. <laughs> okay. He was the last of a dying breed. You talk about old school. Jeremiah was, not only was he old school, but anybody else that could have possibly been like-minded with him, they were already gone. Daniel and, and Ezekiel, uh, everybody else that was going to, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, anybody else with divine viewpoint that was going to be faithful to Yahweh Elohim, they were already carted off to Babylon by now. Jeremiah is the last of the true, legitimate, real, faithful prophets of Yahweh, still in Jerusalem. And uh, so it gets pretty blunt at this point, Okay. When our culture just totally rejects the Word of God and says, that's it, we're done with Bible doctrine, we'd rather listen to this other thing, our culture's over. So we are not going to listen to you, but rather, we will certainly carry out every word that is proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her. See, all to her glory, all to her fertility rights, all to her bringing Tammuz back up from the dead, Okay. We, we preach Christ risen, and it's the glory of Jesus Christ that we serve a risen Savior. Not so in the Babylonian worship service. The Babylonians worshiped the Queen of Heaven because she's the one that went down to, uh, to Hades. She's the one that brings Tammuz back. And we all, if we're going to celebrate that Tammuz is back, the glory goes to Ishtar for bringing Tammuz back. Talk about a wicked, wicked system, Okay. And uh, it's described here. 
proceeding from her mouth, about burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven, pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Is that true? (laughs) Did David do that? Did Solomon do that? Did Rehoboam do that? I mean, you go back through all their history, but see, what's the nature of our adversary? Just go ahead and revise history. They were all queen of heaven worshipers, don't you know? Right? Like the founding fathers of America, they weren't Christians, they were deists. All right? And there's this desire, let's rewrite the whole history after the fact. We've always done this. We've always did this. And because we've always done this, we've always had plenty of food. And we were well off. We never saw any misfortune. You know, how insane is that? That's what they were doing when they said, let's go back to Egypt. We had great food in Egypt and everything was great in Egypt. They wanted to rebel against Moses and Aaron and go back to Egypt because everything was just so great back then. Same thing here. They're about to be destroyed as a nation. Babylon's going to carry them off into captivity and all they can do is dream about the good old days when they so faithfully served the Queen of Heaven all this time. Now, boy, weren't things great then. And so, anyway... Um, we had plenty of food. We were well off, saw no misfortune. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and we have met our end by the sword and by famine. They've got it turned around just backwards. They said our present calamity is because we, we weren't faithful to the queen of heaven like we were supposed to be. And said the women, when we were burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and were pouring out drink offering to her, Was it without our husbands that we made for her our sacrificial cakes in her image and poured out drink offerings to her? Well, what happens when men abdicate their spiritual responsibility in the home, in the marriage, in the local church? When you end up with a feminized Christianity, what do you end up with? What happened when Adam abdicated and followed after uh, Eve's leadership in the I almost called it an apple, went an apple. Whatever that fruit was. Understand, eschatologically, Babylon is called a harlot and judged by the Lord during the great tribulation of Israel. Everything that pertains to this queen of heaven worship that we read about in Isaiah, we study in Jeremiah, we understand historically that's what happened back in those days, but eschatologically, this is what's going to happen after the rapture of the church. What's going to happen when every true believer is with the Lord in heaven? When the largest segment of Christendom on the planet no longer has to hide who they are, then the true queen of heaven worship will once again have the global dominance. All right? Kind of watching what the Pope might be saying this week. (laughs) Okay, what speech he might make related to uh, things that may end up having an eschatological fulfillment if we are that close to hearing the trumpet and being called home. So eschatologically, Babylon is called a harlot. Not she a harlot, she's the mother of harlots. That she has produced additional harlots uh, as daughters to her. And all of the uh, application here in Revelation 17 and 18. Um, I'm not going to go into it today, but if you want, grab a Revelation notebook on your way out the door, out there in the hallway. You've got all the notes you can want on the book of Revelation, including religious Babylon in Revelation 17, the harlot in her religious system, and then commercial Babylon in chapter 18, and uh, the details of those chapters there. 
I want to talk about sensuality and security. I want to talk about spells and sorcery. I got four S's to cover. Verses 8 through 11 are the sensuality and the sorcery. Or I'm sorry, security. Sensuality and security. You know, humans are kind of simple. Men are kind of simple. Um, you know, as far as controlling people, what motivates them? Women are simple. At least for angels. We don't have, the men don't stand a chance. But Satan had women figured out a long time ago. That's why he makes his satanic attacks through the women every chance he can get. But sensuality and security. We find what people will do if they are kept, if their senses are pleased. As long as their senses are pleased, they'll do an awful lot. You can manipulate an awful lot of things as long as they're fat, dumb, and happy, right? Or as long as they're, um, you know, gratified. And likewise, security. Security. And maybe one is more on the male end of things and the other is more on the female end of things. I don't know. I'm, I'll try not to get in trouble this morning. Uh, are, are, are the men more sensual and the women more security-focused or whatever? I think humanity can, can be victimized in both realms. Somebody promises safety, people will compromise an awful lot. Israel all the time, they'll, they'll, they'll sign the, the most phony treaties in the world if they, you know, for the promise of security. And every single time they're betrayed, every single time. And so, uh, again, back to these verses. Hear this, you sensual one who dwells securely. Sensual and secure. You felt secure in your wickedness. And this, uh, this becomes the problem. Now, what I don't have the time to go into, this term for sensual one is um, unique. It only shows up here. It's, it's cognate, though, to Eden. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a participle of Eden, like the Garden of Eden. He calls, uh, he calls Babylon here Adin, and uh, the sensual one, the luxurious one, the... Um, Eden was a paradise. It was a place of luxuries. It was a place of, of, uh, of pleasures or delights. Another term might be delightful one. And if the Garden of Eden is a place of delights, uh, then the delightful being, maybe sensual is a, is a bad rendering here. Maybe uh, we would do better. Uh, lover, lover of luxuries. How do some of the other Bibles handle it? The Holman Christian Standard Bible calls this uh, person the lover of luxuries. Or in the New King James and King James, it's uh, given to pleasures. Given to pleasures. And what we have is a cognate term to the Garden of Eden. It's, uh, these are all translations of a Hebrew term, and it's a difficult Hebrew term because this is really the only place that it shows up other than maybe a couple of proper names that are themselves problematic. Um, as a term for pleasure or delight or luxury. If it's a place of wealth... If it's a place that's secure, what else do you need, right? We're the world's last remaining superpower. You would think all our problems have gone away with the fall of the Soviet Union. Wait a minute. What happens when a civilization believes that we are now secure and safe and wealthy and no one can touch us? Well, that's the pride that precedes the fall. And the next thing you know, there's a long list of people lining up to bring us down. 35 million Muslims migrating into Europe right now. 
How many of them are true Syrian refugees? Very few, 10%. How many are women and children? Very few. (laughs) They're not refugees looking to start a better life with their families. Anyway, I find these things interesting. As I look at this, hear this, you sensual one, you lover of luxuries, you given to pleasure one. I'm looking at this more and more like this ought to become a third passage along with Ezekiel 28 and along with Isaiah 14. In other words, we have what we may actually have here is a personified rebuke against Satan himself, such as we have detailing his fall in, as I mentioned, Ezekiel 28, where he's called Chotham Takanith, or in Isaiah 14, where he's called Halil ben Shachar, the son of the morning, son of the dawn, the, the Lucifer, light-bearing one. Hear this, you sensual one who dwells securely, who says, in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. You can search the scriptures for you said in your heart, and they're only here and chapter 14. What she says in her heart is fully known by God. And we had the five I wills in Isaiah 14. You said in your heart, I will be like the most high God. And those four other I wills. <laughs> okay. I will sit in the recesses of the north on the mount of the assembly. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I haven't memorized them. I need to memorize them. Two times in the scriptures we have God exposing what you have said in your heart. And both times, I believe, are direct references to Satan himself. One that's back in the angelic earth, before Adam, before Eve. One where God exposes what Satan said in his heart in the original angelic fall. And this one, what Satan says in his heart at the moment of his perceived victory in the tribulation. Because he believes that this kingdom of Antichrist is the eternal glory. And yet, what do we know? God's the one that looks upon the heart. God knows every thought, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's fully known by God. 1 Kings 8, 38 and 39, Jeremiah 17, 10. There's a slew of other passages we can turn to. Maybe you have your own favorite passages. Um... I also like 1 Samuel 17. You know, don't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Remember that passage? 1 Kings 8, praying towards the holy temple. Well, God sees the heart. First Kings 8. And I love this. This is also an encouragement. Whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people, Israel each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways whose heart you know. Whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of man. God and God alone looks at the heart. Remember, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God knows the heart and only God knows the heart. Jeremiah 17 and verse 10. Verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, desperately sick. Who can understand it? (laughs) Never mind, of course. 
There's a whole industry out there of professionals that claim unique insights into the souls and minds of men. They call themselves doctors. They believe the treatment of souls is a medical thing. They, uh, and yet, <laughs> they call them in, in modern psychology, they say that they, uh, they treat the mind the way a physician would treat the body. And yet, I think their own language betrays them because they don't use the Greek word for mind, they use the Greek word for soul. They call themselves psuche logos, the psychology. And uh, I think in their very own terms, they betray what they're really all about. Can they understand the hearts and the minds of men? Do they really have this glorious, non-biblical, earthly insight into the soul? God says they don't. God says, I, Yahweh, search the heart. I, Yahweh, test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ comes at second advent, he's not going to be, uh, you know, following uh, Freudian pop psychology, blaming people's problems for making excuses for mommy issues or daddy issues or other uh, type struggles that may uh, get the blame for a lot of stuff. No, he judges and he judges righteously. He alone looks upon the heart to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. These I am statements, these I am statements are defiantly in opposition to I am. Entirely in defiance to I am. We should tremble before I am. And of course, that's the the significance, the memorial name for Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. He revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. You want to know what Yahweh is about? What does Yahweh mean? He introduces himself as I am, Aye in the Hebrew. And Aye is the memorial significance for the, the personal name of Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. And so these I am statements, how dare we, how dare any creature utter an I am statement? We should be trembling before the I am of the universe. Finally, verses 12 and following here. You can read that on your own. Um, Exodus 3, verses 13 through 15. Learn the I am significance. Go to the Gospel of John and find the seven times Jesus declared I am the door the shepherd, the bread. You can find them all. I won't give them away. (laughs) Make it a fun homework assignment for you. Let me get back to Isaiah 47. But these I am statements, thank God that he is I am and we are not. All right, now he says, stand fast now in your spells. Stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. You know, it reaches a certain point and there isn't even a repent message given. The repent message, there's no place for a repent message at this point. It's just go ahead and keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Okay? Keep Keep doing your spells. Keep doing your sorceries. Just see how that works out for you. 
Yahweh is not even issuing a repentance command. There is no repentance command. There is no repentance opportunity. Yahweh is bringing this cosmos to an end. The world will pass away and along with it its lusts. He says in verse 13, You are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moon, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Again, there's no repentance. There's no call upon Yahweh. There's no uh, turn your heart to the one true God. It's just rely on whatever false gods you've been serving this whole time anyway. And isn't this interesting? Everybody's all wrapped up about September 23rd. I don't even know what's supposed to happen on September. I keep asking Dan, can you explain this to me? And it still doesn't make sense, all right? Or last year, the whole 2012 nonsense and all that stupid Mayan calendar stuff and everything else. Why do these dumb things capture the imagination of our, of our society? Why? To me, it's just, it's just ludicrous. If the, I, I said then, I'll say now, if the, if the Mayans really could see the future, I think they would have seen the Spanish coming. You know, I don't pay a lot of attention to these prophecies and things. Spells and sorceries. And boy, are they active today. Spells and sorceries serve Satan for a time, but the Lord is bringing that time to an end. And I believe this world has not yet seen the maximum spellcasting capacity of satanic empowerment. Pharaoh had many demonic servants that worked for him. Nebuchadnezzar had astrologers and Chaldeans and soothsayers that worked for him. All the pagan empires had their supernatural uh, consultants. They had their oracles. They had their soothsayers. They had their spellcasters. This world hasn't seen it yet. What happens when God unrestrains Satan and just gives the world over? The whole world is given over and and Satan is even able to counterfeit a a resurrection for Antichrist. There's a lot that happens here. Verse 14, Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by nor fire to sit before. So have those become to you with whom you have labored. who have trafficked with you from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way, and there is none to save you. Complete and total end. God brings this to a complete and total end. By the way, don't, don't play with this stuff. Supernatural powers are detestable in God's sight. Deuteronomy 18. You know, it's one thing to read a Harry Potter book and watch a movie, and, and, uh, but don't get caught up in actual demonic spellcasting. Okay? Understand what's fiction and make-believe and what's real life. And demonic spellcasting is real life. Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14. And they're in this town. We've got one of the biggest churches of Satan right here in Austin. We've got witches. We've got covens. We've got warlocks. We've got druids. We've got all kinds of stuff in this town. But it's all detestable in God's sight. Satan is going to exercise all the sorceries he'd like as God permits unparalleled and unrestrained evil during the great tribulation of Israel. Unrestrained, as per 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Unrestrained. 
So if you have uh, a loved one that today is without Christ, I recommend some gospel preaching, a whole lot of it, all day, every day. Because <laughs> we don't know what day it's going to be that the trumpet sounds and we're gone. And those that are left behind are going to be left to face this. They're going to be left to face global demonism. We've already read verses 12 and 13 here. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 12. And you know, the world's going to be primed for it. They're going to be just aching for explanations. They're going to be all amazed. A whole bunch of us disappeared and Satan's got explanations ready for it. Well, you know, how to get rid of those primitive religious folks so that the rest of humanity can move on into the age of Aquarius. So that the rest of humanity can evolve further into the next golden age that's on the way as soon as these closed-minded, you know, homophobic bigots are gone out of here. Now we can really have the glory of humanity unveiled. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 12. You know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. Okay, we're waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ, but prior to that, it's the revelation of Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken away. In verse 6, the restrainer is a what? In verse 7, the restrainer is a he. It is a neuter and masculine restrainer. That's God the Holy Spirit, the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit that's characteristic of our church age. When the church age is gone, when every born-again believer in the body of Christ has departed, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Notice though, verse 9, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with lots of with many, with all power and signs and false wonders. What does all mean to you? I believe it means all. I believe it means all. If all my sins have been cast on Christ, all my sins have been forgiven. I like all. All is a good word. All is a great word. And it, it means all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, for the perishing ones, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For those who rejected the gospel during the church age, this is what they're given over to. And God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. That could be happening tomorrow. If the rapture of the church happens today, restraint is lifted, and Satan is going to find himself more and more and more empowered than ever before. I hope we're uh, mindful of this. Last aspect on this. I think the uh, continue in your sorceries command... As eternal judgment approaches, the enigmatic still do, still be, still practice, and still keep exhortations. They resound louder and louder. I think when he just tells them to keep doing the spells and the sorceries, that what we have here is, uh, is an Old Testament expression of what comes across in Revelation 22.11. And I use the word enigmatic because 
It's hard to teach this verse. Let the one who does wrong... This is, this is in the closing book of, of Revelation, chapter, 10, or chapter 22, verse 10. He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. He says, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, as eternal judgment approaches, when the imminent arrival of Jesus Christ is at hand, let the wicked be wicked still. Not even preaching a repentance message at that point, Messiah is coming. I find this interesting. Well... Our nation is not yet to the point that we've been given over. We still ought to be preaching repentance. We still ought to be preaching the gospel. We'll come back next week to chapter 48. It's 22 verses long. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time this morning. And Father, there's just so much. And we know we're missing a lot, Father. We know we're, we're skimming the surface. We're getting a big picture. We know that, uh, that what we're tasting here today needs to be tasted again, needs to be chewed on, it needs to be digested, it needs to be uh, connected with so many other realms of Scripture. Now, Father, I thank you for providing us this, uh, this overview, providing us this big picture view. It's a good reminder, Father, of knowing where we are now in the body of Christ and what's about to be unleashed upon this world. Father, uh, I do pray for an effective witness and a testimony. I do pray, Father, for more uh, opportunities to proclaim Christ to this lost and dying world. Because, Father, when that trumpet sounds and we're caught up to be with the Lord in the air, there will no longer remain any human evangelist on this planet. And, uh, and Satan himself will be unleashed, unrestrained. So, Father, uh, I do pray that we would uh, be mindful, that we would have the attitude in us, which is also in Christ Jesus, that we would look upon the fields and see that they're white for the harvest. And that we would not regard your promises as slow. Father, you are not slow, but you are patient. So I pray that we would have all these attitudes day by day and moment by moment. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.